0: Good evening, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I'm Anna Halligan. Tonight, I will be sharing two interviews that I recorded and aired about a year ago with two researchers who have been studying groundwater and streamflow in a changing climate. My first interview was with Dr. David Drawley, a research hydrologist with the Pacific Southwest Research Station with the USDA Forest Service. David received his PhD from UC Berkeley, where much of his research occurred in conjunction with other research associated with the Mary Powers Lab in the Eel River Critical Zone Observatory. Our conversation began with David providing a description of watershed hydrology and groundwater storage.
1: When I talk about or think about water storage, um, I guess I would say that I first would like to describe how I think about a watershed And at least in the kind of upland eroding environments like the Eel River, you know, where we have actively incising channels and eroding hill slopes and we have topography and we have streams um, flowing over bedrock, I really kind of think about these watersheds as really like collections of hill slopes where a hill slope you know, in a way, is kind of like uh, the atomic unit of a landscape, and it's it's bounded by a ridge on one side and a stream on the other side, and all of the the water storage that we're interested in, the water storage that matters to plants, that matters to streams, um, it takes place within this kind of atomic hill slope unit,
2: um,
1: and the uh, the hill slope is. A nice framework for thinking about water storage because we can kind of um, can, can kind of think of it as this like kind of you know fundamental unit of the landscape. We can kind of take a cross section, slice it open, and look inside and see some pretty distinct structures. Um, we can really see how uh, the the subsurface of the landscape is organized um, within these individual units. And I guess the the term or the the phrase that is commonly or being used more frequently in these types of watershed contexts is the critical zone. So the critical zone is defined as this sort of near-surface permeable layer of the earth spanning from fresh bedrock at depth uh, all the way up to the top of the tree canopy, um, where water and biota and nutrients um, and all the things that matter for life and for ecosystems and society are kind of seasonally cycling and being stored and being released. Um, and from a water standpoint, the the critical zone can be, I, I would say, in the most simplest sense kind of broken up into three distinct reservoirs of water storage. Um, And this might look different in different places, but at least in, in the context of the Eel river, those, those three reservoirs kind of starting at the ground surface and working our way down look something like kind of near surface soil and soils are, we're all familiar with them. You can, you know, stick a shovel into it, Um, it's, it's mixed up, it's organic material. It, um, is actually kind of bioturbated. Uh, it's, you know, it doesn't look like, uh, it's not rocky necessarily. It's, um, you know, it can be tilled or you can, you know, stick a probe into it. You can easily disturb it or transport it. And water is commonly stored in soil as soil moisture, um, and soil moisture is you can really think of it as water stored um, in the pores between um, you know grains that m- comprise the the soil. Um, and soil moisture is usually uh, kind of thought of as um, being an unsaturated water storage. That is, there's no water table. There's no groundwater that you can pump. Um, it's instead it's stored as water held under tension, like water held in a sponge, um, is held and <clears throat> it can be accessed by vegetation, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, drain gravitationally. It's not drip, drip, dripping out the bottom. Um, and then below that soil moisture layer, um, in the subsurface, at least in the, the eel, what we find is that the soil layer is underlain by a really, really thick weathered bedrock zone. So this is above this fresh bedrock boundary that's at great depths, but it's below the soils. And it's material, um, kind of parent bedrock material, which in the, the eel is primarily um, sedimentary type rock shale derived type rock um, that has been weathered it has been chemically altered it's kind of crappy crumbly rock that's full of fractures and pore spaces and it too can store significant volumes of water and below the the soil layer this weathered bedrock layer can be either saturated or unsaturated so like soil is unsaturated Um, or rather soil moisture is like unsaturated water storage. We also have this term that we refer to as rock moisture, and this is water that's stored in this weathered, fractured bedrock, Um, and it's stored in this kind of sponge-like way where there's no kind of uh, actual groundwater table or a free water surface, but instead you have water that's stored in the fractures and the pores um, of this weather bedrock that's held under tension, like water held in a dry sponge, um, but that can nevertheless be accessed by trees, for example, um, or some of the instruments that we use to measure water storage. Below that weathered bedrock, um, unsaturated zone, if you go deeper, you eventually run into groundwater. Um, and commonly on the North Coast, the groundwater systems um, on these unit hill slopes Um, are fractured bedrock aquifers. So, you know, it's not like the kind of groundwater system necessarily that you would find if you drilled a big deep hole in the central valley through all this alluvial kind of uh, river deposited material. Instead, this is a groundwater system that resides in fractures and um, different kind of, um, you know, kind of rocky Uh, type structures in the deep subsurface, and it's this groundwater table um, that at least in some of our western watersheds in the South Fork Eel can be kind of found anywhere between, you know, five and 20, 30 meters below the surface, and it's this deeper fractured bedrock groundwater system that is the groundwater that is the water storage reservoir that's feeding adjacent streams. And the way that water gets to those streams is it moves down slope. That's kind of like the, I guess, the like fundamental uh, precept, I guess, of hydrology is that water goes downhill. um, And the water in these fractured bedrock aquifers reaches the streams because it's flowing down slope. um, And it emerges through seeps and springs primarily um and and feeds our 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 headwater watersheds um and of course it's all these small hill slopes that taken together make up a watershed um and it's all these you know small watersheds like the elder creek watershed where we do a lot of our work um and have a lot of our kind of intensively monitored hill slopes that together um make up the, the eel river watershed uh Yeah, I hope that answers the question in a really long-winded way. If I had to summarize, I would say three really important water storage reservoirs in the subsurface that I conceptualize is soil moisture starting at the top, rock moisture below that, and then fractured bedrock aquifer-type groundwater storage um, in the deeper parts of the subsurface, and that's that's what feeds the streams.
2: Could you explain because I think this is really interesting and I think people around the county will be really interested in learning what the differences between the subsurface geology in Western and Eastern Mendocino County is. So what, you know, kind of what are the characteristics of this coastal belt mudstone geology versus the central belt melange?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the South Fork or rather, you know, much of the, the North coast, is underlain by the Franciscan complex, which is a geological assemblage in Northern California. And the South Fork eel, really the whole eel, um, is made up of these three distinct geological belts that comprise the Franciscan complex. And so there's the coastal belt, farthest to the west. You can really think of them as sort of like three parallel, like north-south running stripes um, of different rocks that underlie the the eel. And farthest to the west is the coastal belt mudstones. And the coastal belt mudstones are primarily shales and sandstones. Um, They're, you know, originally kind of ocean rocks. They were... Uh, formed in the Pacific Ocean basin off the coast of California, you know, over millions of years of deposition um, of sediment and materials um, eroded and deposited, eroded off the coast and, you know, kind of um, accumulated over long time frames. And these shales and sandstones were eventually uplifted and. <clears throat> They form now the western part of the South Fork-Eel River watershed. And the cool thing about these rocks is these coastal Belt mudstones, they are really, really kind of prone to fracturing. And so if you – and you might have seen this if you've, you know, walked, um, you know, down, for example, the you know, one of the stream beds in the South Fork or if you've ever visited Elder Creek – The Angelo Coast Range Reserve, you might see some rocks on the bank, um, shales, that look all crumbly and crappy and they're kind of breaking apart. These rocks are just really, really fracture prone. And so these coastal belt mudstones, um, because of their rheological properties, that is the material properties of the rock, um, they are very fractured and very weathered to great depths and so you have these thin soils but below that you have tens of meters of fractured weathered sandstones and shales that have huge water storage capacity and so the the soils themselves are actually really really thin but it's this deeper fractured weathered bedrock that actually has the capacity to store huge amounts of water Um, or rather larger volumes of water than the the kind of near-surface shallow soils. If you keep going east, though, you transition into a different belt of the Franciscan, and that's the Central Belt Melange. And the Melange has really identical origins as the Coastal Belt. Um, It was also, you know, kind of formed through the accumulation of sediments in the Pacific Ocean Basin. Um, But that rock that was eventually uplifted and now forms the central belt uh, portion of the Franciscan, it had a very different kind of tectonic trajectory. And so, whereas the coastal belt mudstones, you know, they were uplifted, they're relatively intact. You know, you can see the bedding planes and the bedrock, you can you know, you can identify like individual depositional events in, um, you know, road cuts and you know different, um, you know, places where you can actually see the underlying bedrock. The melange, instead, was really churned and just beat to crap in the subduction zone off the Pacific Coast. And so, although it has very similar kind of geochemical signatures, it sort of, if you were to, you know, do a a geochemical analysis on the rocks, they look really similar to the coastal belt mudstones, but they have instead this like very different kind of rheological um, setup that is the material properties of these rocks are very different. Um, and they actually behave a little bit more like a, a clay, like a pulverized, imagine taking a coastal belt shale and just, you know, crushing it and running it through a, you know, a, a cement mixer and smashing it until it's turned into a kind of a fine, powdery, wet mush. Um, and that that is what the, the melange is, This central belt melange geology. It's a matrix um, of this uh, kind of what's colloquially referred to as blue goo. Uh, it's you know it's, it's shale derived but it's this gooey kind of pulverized uh, fracture resistant um, kind of material that importantly has really really low um, water storage properties and so unlike these fractured um, mudstones and sandstones it tends to kind of the melange um, Material. This matrix material tends to seal fractures. Um, it does not necessarily uh, conduct water as easily as these fractured sandstones and shales. And consequently, in the central belt watersheds, the depth to which you have kind of the porosity and the kind of uh, ability to store and release water seasonally, it's much more shallow. And so the Central Belt watersheds, and you can see this on a map. If you if you look on Google Earth, um, you know, and you kind of find yourself on you know one o one, say between Willits and Laytonville, and you look a little bit to the west, and you look a little bit to the east, what you'll see is this really sharp transition from, you know, really dense conifer, um, kind of hardwood evergreen forest to the west inside these coastal belt watersheds where you have these deep water storing kind of fractured shales and sandstones and then just to the east the central belt melange has this very different um, underlying rock that does not store water as well it's not as the hill slopes are not as deeply weathered and so what you find there is um, a very different ecosystem. You find primarily uh, Oregon white oak, Quercus cariana, um and annual seasonal grasses, European grasses that were introduced. So this, you know, white oak savanna. Um, and these are the two rock types that, you know, kind of make up most of the South Fork. Uh, there's a little bit of, uh, weird geology going on in the Cedar Creek area um, near Leggett. But for the most part, most of the South Fork is um, underlain by these, these two geological types. And these two geological um, types have very different water storage properties, and consequently you end up with very different ecosystems. Um, you know, one that is requires significantly more water during the dry season, and then one that is you know more uh, tolerant of water limitation, like the oaks and the the, the grasses that that dry up and senesce by the, you know, by the middle of the summer.
0: My next question for David was targeted at rainfall variability associated with climate change and how that might impact our groundwater storage capacity and vegetation.
1: Yeah, this is this is super cool. This is the most. To me, some of this has been some of the most kind of interesting work that has come out of the yield. And and the motivation is that, you know, a lot of climate projections, um, you know, the, the, the prediction is not necessarily that um, total average annual rainfall is going to decrease. In fact, most of the, the climate models, at least for the North Coast, predict that average rainfall is going to stay about the same but there are changes that are expected and those changes have to do with the variability of rainfall. And so, you know, whereas the average, the mean is kind of predicted to more or less kind of hover around where it is now, we do expect there to be, um, higher highs and lower lows going forward. So more drought and more deluge. Um, and then importantly, you know, a, a kind of, a an increasingly unreliable water supply during the shoulder seasons. These are some of the the main projections from, you know, the latest and greatest climate models that are out there. And so that means, you know, just frankly, just less reliable water supply, especially less reliable in the shoulder seasons. So thinking, you know, October, November, and then late spring, um, those, those periods are going to be increasingly kind of uncertain. Um, and so that, motivated us to to think about not, you know, not how much, how much rainfall kind of is there on average um, in, you know, in the North coast and how, how do ecosystems respond to that? But instead, how, how does the and streams um, respond to the annual kind of swings, the interannual variability um, in rainfall totals, because it's this, this variability question, this volatility in annual rainfall that is going to be really important, um, at least under the kind of change scenarios that we expect on the North Coast. And what we stumbled on by kind of, you know, virtue of the fact that we, we had many, many years of data, um, you know, we were lucky enough to have worked at these sites for so long that we were able to see the dry years and we were able to see the wet years and kind of observe what happened in both those scenarios. And what we saw was really surprising. And our observation in our two field sites, one, maybe a lot of the listeners will be familiar with Elder Creek, the Angelo Coast Range Reserve, that's a coastal belt watershed. so pretty large water storage capacity in the, those deeper um, sandstones and shales, fractured weather bedrock. Um, and then our other field site is a little farther east, underneath that central belt melange geology. Um, and in both of those cases, we saw that in very, very wet years and in very, very dry years, the vegetation water use that we observed was pretty stable. That is, you know, if you compared the the water use um, in the 2015 or 2016 water years, the pretty dry kind of drought period water years. And then you compare that to, say, the 2017 water year of evapotranspiration, the kind of plant plant status during that very that record rainfall year. In both of those cases, the plants used more or less the same amount of water. And so the, the question is, like, how can you have – you know, literally a threefold increase in rainfall, you know, from 2015 to 2017, yet the plants, the trees, use almost the exact same volume of water. It's almost like they didn't even know that the drought happened. They didn't even know that the big flood year happened. Um, And the answer we figured out has to do with the subsurface water storage capacity of these two watersheds. Um, and the key insight is that the subsurface water storage capacity in both the Coastal Belt watersheds and in the, the Central Belt Melange watersheds, both of those water storage capacities are significantly less than average annual rainfall. And so the, the kind of silly, I guess, like picture that I have in my mind when I when I think about this is I think of The watershed storage capacity is like a cup, and I think about the average rainfall as being like a pitcher filled with water, and the key insight is it doesn't matter, you know, if your pitcher is all the way full of water or halfway full of water or quarter full or two-thirds full. All that matters is that you're able to fill up that small cup with the pitcher, and so it doesn't matter how much total there is. You, you can imagine pouring that big pitcher into the cup. It overflows, right? As soon as that cup has reached capacity, you can keep pouring water on it all day. It's not going to store more. And so what we refer to this condition as as being a a storage capacity limited condition, that is to say that when it rains more, you don't necessarily store more. When it rains less, you don't necessarily store less. You almost always kind of reach the top of the cup, and you know any additional rainfall beyond that is just kind of it's overflow and in 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 the watershed kind of context, overflow is streamflow during the winter time um, and so what that means is that this subsurface water storage capacity, the fact that it's significantly less than the average annual rainfall means that annual variations in rainfall don't necessarily translate into annual variations in subsurface water storage. Consequently, the variability in rainfall doesn't necessarily translate into variability in plant water access because it's after all the plants or rather it's the subsurface water storage that the plants are relying on for their dry season water use. Um, and so since that, subsurface water storage variable is not um strongly coupled to the kind of annual rainfall patterns. Uh you see this like total disconnect between you know the wet years and the dry years and what the plants themselves are actually experiencing. Um the the important there's a couple important caveats here. One of course that we're referring to this as storage capacity limited. There are places in the state that are not that way. And we refer to them as precipitation limited. And you can use the cup analogy again here and say, you know, imagine you have a big cup instead of a small cup um, and you have your same pitcher. If you have a big cup, you know, if it, if you pour more water into it, you store more water. If you pour less water into it, you store less water. And so in places that have this large subsurface water storage capacity relative to annual rainfall patterns, you do see that forests, trees, et cetera, are very sensitive to annual rainfall patterns. And so there's these two kind of groupings, and we see that the state, you know, most watersheds in California lie on, you know, somewhere along this spectrum between storage capacity limited and precipitation Limited. What's important, and someone actually brought this up to me after I, I gave a talk on this storage capacity limitation idea, and they, the person said, you should be careful communicating this because, you know, you might give people the idea or the sense that, you know, it, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, how much water we pump, for example, from groundwater for streams because, you know, the 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 storage and the rainfall are decoupled. And so, you know, maybe that gives us permission to kind of, you know, use as much water as we want during dry years or something like that. Um, But I I would actually caution the the opposite and say, you know, I think that there's a, a perception that in very wet years, especially on the North coast, you know, because we got a lot of rainfall during the 2017 water year, that means that, you know, we have permission to use more water or to pump more water from the hill slopes or whatever. Uh, But but in the storage capacity kind of framework, you know, just because it rains more doesn't mean you stored more. And so I I think it's an important kind of consideration when we're thinking about water use and kind of balancing ecological kind of sustainability and variables that we we care about with human water needs. Um, You know, uh, having an understanding of how water is actually stored um, is essential for, you know, determining our our strategies for using water during wet years and dry years. And this, this kind of storage capacity limitation framework is, I think, an important insight for informing those types of management strategies.
2: Yeah, so so kind of getting back to the comment that was presented to you after after you've given one of your presentations about your research. What what would you say to people this year like I can imagine if someone was going to call in right now, you know, we around the County are looking at one of the worst, you know, precipitation rainfall years on record um, yeah. in different parts of the County, you know, that average rainfall for the water year. And even just like today is about half or even less yeah. than 40% of what it would be. So, and, and, and there are, there is evidence, you know, in reduced stream flow. Um, you know, just in people's domestic water use, so a lot of people rely on yeah. shallow groundwater wells. How do you explain what's happening right now with water storage in the context yeah. of this very dry year?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because maybe a, a like a nuance that I didn't I didn't really art- articulate earlier is that al- although we see in in the record this pretty strong kind of decoupling between annual rainfall patterns and water storage in the subsurface, um, in some of our North coast catchments, that's not to say that, you know, rainfall variability and drought don't matter. Um, and that is especially the case in years where we have really dry, warm Springs. And so this, you know, this year, these last couple months of the of the wet season, we have had very little rain. It has been very warm, um, and 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 I would say if if something you know if there was a rainfall pattern that was most important for kind of groundwater sustainability and ecosystem function during the dry season, it is really this spring kind of late wet season shoulder season that is the most important for for understanding water availability in the coming months. And unfortunately in this case the uh, you know our this this drought has been accompanied by it's really kind of a worst case scenario drought in my opinion which is to say the majority of the rain arrived in the early parts of the wet season. We have not had very much at all in these last couple months. Um, and, you know, even more kind of alarmingly, the last couple of months have been quite warm, um, well above average temperatures and those things kind of combined, I think are uh, definitely cause for concern. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, I think that it's pretty clear that stream flows are already historically low, um. If anyone has the time, there's uh, Eli Assarian gave a really cool talk um, at the um, Eel River Recovery Project Zoom series this last week on stream flow patterns throughout the the eel um, in this you know kind of historically, but also kind of talk he he talked a little bit about this year's um, kind of stream flow patterns and, you know, e- e- Eli was just showing how historically low the stream flows are. And that's, you know, I would say that sort of in a, that's not because we've had low total annual rainfall per se, but instead it's because this, this kind of spring season has been pretty bad. And and Eli kind of, I thought this was really cool, pointed out that, you know, in the past, there have been very dry, um, spring seasons with a very late kind of early summer rainfall event. Um, and that has bumped flows up. So like these kind of, you know, last minute saves from, you know, some very freakish like June rainfall event has bumped flows up and, and really led to pretty significant flows over dry seasons, despite the fact that total rainfall has been really low. I'm not saying that's going to happen. It probably won't happen. Statistically, it's really unlikely that we'll get that kind of flow saving of rainfall event this year. But it's more to just kind of point out that, you know, it's it's, it's these kind of late spring conditions that are really the most uh, salient, like the most important for for kind of setting the stage for what happens in the, in the dry season.
0: You are tuned in to the Ecology Hour on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting listener-supported community radio. Just as a reminder, that interview with David Raleigh was recorded about a year ago, which is interesting because we are still in a drought very similar to last year with early season rains followed by a period of dry, warm weather. However, this year we did receive some recent spring rainfall. I got about six inches at my house near Big River. Um, And David referenced researcher Eli Asarian towards the end of his interview, which is the perfect segue into the second half of the show, where I also interviewed Eli about his analysis of long-term trends in streamflow on the Northern California coast. Eli is the principal scientist at Riverbend Sciences, which is a biological and ecological consulting firm based out of Eureka. And both David and Eli participated in a Zoom video series hosted by the Eel River Recovery Project, and I encourage you to listen to their extended talks, which can be found at eelriverrecovery.org. My first question for Eli was focused on understanding what the current trends of rainfall and streamflow have been in Northern California.
3: California naturally has a highly variable climate you might read a statistic that might say something like, you know, the average uh, rainfall for an area is 30 inches or 40 inches or 50 inches. And, and like you say, that's, a, that's an average over say a 30 year period or something like that. But in any given year, it's actually pretty rare that um, any given year has average rainfall. Right? If the average rainfall is 40 inches, uh, you know, y- the rainfall could be bouncing around anywhere from 20 inches up to up to 60 inches, and so it's a, it's a more so than other places in the world. California has a naturally variable climate, so there's always been that that level of of that sort of bouncing around randomness from year to year. And so in, in in some respects, it's like a it's like a roll of the roll of the dice, right? We sort of know what numbers are are on the dice, and so you have a you know it's going to come up in some range, but you don't know what it's going to be in any particular year and the timing of when the rain is going to fall which we will talk more about that later the timing of when the rain falls is really important not just how much falls in a year um, and so when we look at what the what the climate models predict for the north coast of of california and also look back at the historical record on on what the what the patterns have, have been there's always been highly variable precipitation and the highly variable precipitation is likely to continue to be highly variable. What I think is really changing the most is the temperatures. So the, the air temperatures are, are are definitely, they have risen and, and, they're, and they're likely to um, continue to rise. And you know, we we'll can talk more later about how, how much it's likely to rise. Um, uh, I mentioned the analogy earlier of, of the dice. and so really one of the ways that I, I think about, about climate change is that it's changing the numbers that are on the dice. it's loading the dice. it's taking out the cool years and it's it's replacing them with more extreme hot years. So we're still going to have the variability but but it's going to be warmer and warmer. Um, and there is you know some indication that the precipitation is becoming more variable. If you look back at, at recent years, obviously we've had a lot of dry years in the last ten years or so, but we also had some some pretty um, pretty wet years. And because of that that variation in the rainfall, it, it's, it, it is hard to say what what's a new normal and what is uh, just bad bad chances. Um, you know, some of the stuff uh, a lot of our rain can come in just a few storms in a year, and so it's just. To some extent happenstance on on you know where does where does how does how does the atmosphere work and those few storms that are coming in do they do they do they veer you know in our direction or do they do they shift to the north or, or to the south and what we actually get?
0: Eli went on to discuss what an annual water budget would look like in a Mediterranean climate.
3: I think a good bit of context is to think about um, what's called an annual water budget, and so. Um, you can you, you start with the, the precipitation that, that falls from the sky, that that, that 40 inches or, or, or whatever it is, and then try to 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 figure out and quantify what are what what sort of bins and buckets does that does that water go into? How much of it is um, you know used by by the trees and the, and the vegetation? How much of it uh, soaks into the ground and then gets into the groundwater and then leaks out into the streams and becomes Becomes flow, water flow in in the rivers and streams. And if you if you look at that annual water budget, what you see is that obviously we have a rainy season and and a dry season, right? And so most of the most of the action in the the water budget, well, all of the inputs are by definition happening in the in the rainy season, right? That's when the precipitation happens, and then sometime you know the rain kind of tapers off, depends on the year, right? But in April and in May, and then you know by June is, is quite dry, and then it doesn't rain again until the rains start again in the um, you know September, October, November, December, depending on the year. Um, and you know when water in in the winter time when it's raining, water is is relatively abundant on on the North Coast, right? We don't really have. Most of the time, we don't have a water scarcity problem in the winter. When we have a water scarcity problem, is in, is in the, the summer, right? And especially as we get later into the summer, the season that we're that we're coming into now of, of August and, and September, and then if it doesn't rain, you know that persists into into October or, or even later. Um, that's when the water scarcity is, and things like um, changes in the um,
2: temperature the rising temperature, the climate change and the warming affects
3: um, most strongly um, the summer flows because those are just kind of the most the most sensitive and they're also the most sensitive to, to human uses. And so I think we need to pay a lot of attention to what's happening um, in that summer period because that's the, that's the time when you know, water is scarce and there's limited supply for both for, for people to, you know, to use for, for, for drinking water and for irrigation and all the other things that you need water for, and for the, the things that live in the rivers and streams like the fish.
0: After Eli explained to me more about water supply and water demand, I asked him about whether his research... On long-term trends in streamflow, aligned with other researchers' data, like the data collected in the Casper Creek watershed, which indicates that there has been a current trend of prolonged dry periods.
3: It does. It does um, seem that there are some indications that yeah, as, as you mentioned that 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 the dry season is 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 lengthening at the period of time when we don't get significant rain um is getting longer although it does bounce around <laughs> one of the analysis i did was back in i think the year 2013 or 2014 and so i did this analysis looking at the past 50 years and one of the things i noticed was hey it hasn't rained in september in like 13 years in a row or something like that like from from 2000 to 2013 in the area that i was looking at the north coast um it, didn't, it really was no, no September rain for for 13 years or so. So I, I was like, "Oh, that's a really interesting result." So I, so I put that out in a report. And then, of course, the next year, it, we got a nice rainstorm in September. <laughs> and since there was a there was a period of a few years where we did get some nice rains in September, although I think that has um, kind of flipped back in the last few years. So to some extent, these things are are are, are you know are, are, are variable and, and, and cyclical. Um, but even if or, or, I guess, regardless of when it starts to rain, when, as the climate gets warmer,
2: um, you know, the the, the the vegetation uses more and
3: more water and um, people use more and more water. You know, just think about if you live in a hot climate or it's a hot day and you want to keep your, your lawn green or your garden growing, you got to water more, right, When when it's a hot day than when it's a cool day. Or if you live in a hot place versus a, cool place and so as the climate warms um i think it even for an equivalent amount of of a rainstorm in the fall it's going to take the 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 land is kind of more dehydrated it's more dried out at the end of the summer it's always been dry but i think it's it's getting even drier and there's kind of more more demand there that, that that those first bits of water that fall are going to get sucked up by the soil and, and, and by the vegetation because they're they're drier than they've been in, in past decades. And so I think that lengthening of the dry season is, is kind of a double whammy, right, where the precipitation is possibly getting more variable and and that the season of, of no rain is extending. But then also once it does start raining, the land is starting from a drier place. And so it takes longer to kind of, Re- rehydrate and for that water then to sort of get past the, the top of the soil and get past the trees and get down into that um, deep groundwater where then it will, it will leak out into the streams and increase the flow in the streams. Um, but I think that answers that question. And then you'd also ask about the effects of the of the low flow on um, organisms in the, in the stream. So I guess the, the first thing to say is that um, if you're if you're a, if you're a critter like a fish that, that lives in a stream, yeah, often that stream only has to go dry for a few minutes, right, to kill most of the things that are in that stream. And so, one issue when the stream gets low is it becomes more vulnerable to um, effects from people who are using water. So. Let's just say on on the stream, there's maybe you know ten landowners up and down that particular creek. And when the, the flow is really really low in the late summer and, and and fall, if everyone turns their pumps on, their diversion pumps at the same time, you could um, you know pull out of the water out of the out of the stream. Big parts of it could could go dry and, and and kill the things that are living in there. Even if then two hours later, people turn their pumps off and the flow comes back, and someone walking up to that creek. Might look at it and say, "Oh, it looks fine." You yeah, know, I don't see a problem here. Um, so that's that's, I guess, the most the most well, the most acute effect would be, you know, the creek just drying up for for um, you know weeks or months in a row. And then one step back from that is, you know, um, periodic dehydration from from excessive diversions or maybe even just on a really really hot day, maybe the trees use more water and, and suck it up, and then. One step below that would be sort of chronic effects, where you know the water can get stagnant, and um, you know it's the it's water um, flowing in, um, tumbling into a pool that provides the reaeration to um, make sure that the water is oxygenated. It's most most animals that live in streams, they need, they need oxygen to, to breed. That's where they get the water. And so as flow gets lower and lower and lower, it also tends to decrease oxygen levels. And if that water is also, if it's, um, if it's exposed to the sun, if it's not shaded, then it can, um, it can increase its um, vulnerability to, to warming up and getting too hot. And you know, a lot of our um, river animals, like like salmon and other fish, they require cold water.
0: Our conversation then shifted from analyzing the trends of rainfall and streamflow to talking about how current water management and the infrastructure that supports that water management was developed during a relatively wet geologic time period. And I asked Eli what changes we need to make to conserve and protect water resources for human and environmental uses.
3: I think one good place to start here is by contrasting the north coast with other parts of california or, or places in the in the southwest where on the on north coast we have you know relatively low um, population density of, of people and relatively abundant water at those annual annual timescales um, so really what we have is is a a water scarcity problem during times of year during the during the summer and the fall and so one of our one of our keys is to um, is to develop new um, storage as you say we you know our, our infrastructure has kind of developed in a relatively wet um, climate period of the past past century and especially the the mid part of the 20th century if I think from like the 40s through the until around the 77 drought that was a, that was quite a wet a wet period and so we've been able to some extent rely on um, the natural storage of the, of the groundwater and, and the soils and you know pulling water out of the streams and out of the rivers um, during the summer we've been able to rely on that and as the climate warms that's going to get less and less reliable. And so what we need to do is to build sources of, of storage whether that is um, you know ponds or tanks, or, um, you know, off-stream reservoirs. There's, there's kind of different... Um, depending on the, you know, the amount of water you need to store, there, there's better and worse ways to do it. But So I wanted to contrast that with places like the the San Joaquin Valley down in like, you know, Fresno, Bakersfield area. That's a really dry climate and they're water scarce on an annual basis. So down there, building storage is not really going to help them that much. It might, you know every once every few years they might be able to capture some of a larger flood event that they're not able to capture now. But really in that situation, what they really need to do is reduce water, water demand, and you know, maybe unfortunately take some some agricultural land out of production because there just isn't enough water to support it. And the ground is literally sinking from how much water is being pumped out of it. And so if we contrast that to the North Coast, we 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 really Need to focus on storage and enhancing amount of of of, of storage, both um, sort of direct storage that we can control, like the ponds and the tanks, and then also indirect storage of maybe trying to find ways to enha- enhance groundwater recharge and that type of thing. Um, and of course, we need to to use water in efficient ways. We don't want to we don't want to be wasting water. So I think we need to pursue kind of a you know a dual track of of increasing storage that we have and also using the water more more efficiently so um i would i would i think close here on, on sort of a what, do, what what do we do note so i talked about the importance of, of storing water right so if you're someone who is you know living out in the in the hills and you're and you're diverting water from a from a creek um, if you can if you if you can afford it and you can find ways to do it we would really encourage you to to find ways to you know set up tanks or to build a, a pond that's you know appropriately set up that's not gonna not gonna fail and you know you want to put it in the right place and want to have the right people build it and you want to have it be be secure. But um you know find a way to store to store that summer water or to store the winter water for use in the summer. And then um so we have another um, minute or so I wanted to talk about um climate change and um, I think one thing that's really important to realize is that yes, the climate is is already changing. So it's not a question of if, are we going to have climate change or are we not? It's how much are we are we going to have? And really, we we don't know the answer to that because you know the future hasn't happened yet, and we don't know if as a global society we're going to get our get our act together, or really how how well are we going to get our act together? I don't I don't think we're going to completely fail, but are we going to do you know? Pretty good. Are we going to do excellent? And so it's really, um, it's really kind of exciting. I think to see how how we're going to respond as a as a global society to this this um, this climate challenge. Because if you know if we don't do something, if we don't do something big. You know it's going to get really grim. But at the same time you know we're the most adaptable species in the history of the planet and the the technology and, and, and the information and tools that we have available now you know we have ways to to generate energy that don't don't produce carbon and so we have we have the tools we just need to to find the you know the political will and the, and the organization to to um, to deploy it and so i you know i'm, I'm hopeful that we'll, that we'll get it together and um it's you know every little, Every little bit counts. You know, if we end up with uh, one and a half degrees of warming or two degrees of warming, that's going to have totally different effects. And then we end up with, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight degrees of warming. So it's not, I think, I guess I would encourage people that, you know, let's do whatever let's do Whatever we can and whatever we can do is, is going to be helpful.
0: As we near the end of the hour, I want to thank you for listening to the Ecology Hour, which airs every Tuesday at 7 p.m.